1: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: You may remember back in 2016 when Preet Bharara, then the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, issued a warning to Wall Street.
3: Today, tomorrow, next week, the week after, privileged Wall Street insiders who are considering breaking the law will have to ask themselves an important question. Is law enforcement listening?
2: A slew of insider trading convictions followed, cementing Barrara's nickname as the Sheriff of Wall Street. But the sheriff is gone, and the Trump administration is apparently not interested in filling the position. The prosecution of white-collar crime has hit an all-time low during the Trump administration, down 30% for Trump's first three years in office from the average under President Barack Obama, according to data from Syracuse University. Joining me is John Coffey, a professor at Columbia Law School. His new book is Corporate Crime and Punishment, The Crisis of Under-Enforcement. Jack, how would you characterize the drop in the white-collar crime numbers?
1: Well, I think it's the enforcement generally. You can look at the number of defendants who are prosecuted way down. You can look at the fines that are imposed on corporations, down by 70%. You can look at new policies that say you don't have to do much to get credit for a compliance plan. It used to be, for example, that the antitrust laws and price fixing would only grant you leniency if you made a complete and total confession and you were the first to confess. That's all been thrown out recently by the Trump administration. And as long as you adopt a reasonably credible compliance plan, you can get very substantial sentencing leniency, even for a crime like price fixing, which is extremely hard to detect. I can give you examples on all kinds of areas in terms of the numbers or in terms of the policy changes, but the government is going much, much easier and softer, both criminally and civilly, against corporations to commit unlawful conduct.
2: Do we blame the president for this, or is it someone lower down in the chain?
1: Well, that's a good question. And I would tell you the first thing about organizational behavior, corporations or other organizations, is that the critical variable is tone at the top. And the United States government today, the tone set by the top, by the president, is that law compliance isn't that important. It's a minor virtue at best. And don't get yourself hung up on it, get the job done. So I think that there is an implicit signal from the top which lower levels always copy, that law compliance is not the government's first concern.
2: Let's look at a few different areas of white-collar crime, starting with securities fraud cases.
1: Well, we're seeing them go down. Now, understand, for the last six months, there has been the COVID-19 crisis. And most courthouses are shut. So I do know that there are a number of cases, some of which I've worked with the prosecution on, which are delayed until the courts can reopen. So that'll create something of a statistical artifact. But in general, I think the government is reallocating troops away from securities fraud, and antitrust fraud, to things the government cares more about, such as immigration cases, alleged terrorism cases, other cases that they are concerned with. The first three years of the Trump administration, this comes from data assembled by a group at Syracuse University, the number of white-collar defendants during those first three years fell by 30%. Now, that's a real decline because there had been a significant increase for a while under the Obama administration.
2: Now, the Justice Department has criticized that Track data saying it routinely differs from other reporting, for example, from the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they say that the department hasn't eased up on white-collar crime.
1: Well, actually, the government's official statistics are only slightly different. TRAC, which stands for Transactional Report Access Clearinghouse, it's a watchdog looking at Justice Department, and they're not loved by justice. No one loves to be watched. <laughs> they say the number of defendants is down by 30% and the studies by the U.S. attorneys say it's down by 26%. Not a huge difference.
2: So is it that the FBI is not investigating these crimes anymore? They're just letting it go by?
1: Well, I would say most U.S. attorneys use the FBI or other enforcement agencies, but they've got to allocate their own manpower. If at one point in time you had 20 people in the securities fraud unit in the Southern District and you were to reduce it to 10 you're going to cut the manpower that can prosecute these cases by 50 percent, and there will be a decline. So it could be in part the FBI, but I think it's more the manpower and what they're given is their priority.
2: Some observers say that though there's a downturn in white-collar prosecutions, there's an uptick in immigration prosecutions.
1: Well, I agree with that, but that's because you're allocating the troops differently. If you take your manpower, let's suppose a U.S. attorney has 100 lawyers under his command, and when he started, he had 25 of them in white-collar crime, and after two years, he shifts 12 of them out and puts them over in immigration or terrorism cases or organized crime cases. You're going to have a consequent decline because there are less people there investigating, and you only prosecute what you investigate.
2: What about money laundering?
1: Well, there has been a decline in money laundering cases. Money laundering is unique because the prosecution can charge that pretty much when it wants. It's a very easy crime to allege if you found other felonies. And by eliminating money laundering prosecutions, you are again being more lenient on corporations. Why? Well, that's speculative. It could well be that the Trump administration believes that the stock market is the most important achievement they have, and they don't want to prosecute public corporations and cause the market to go down. But that's all speculative. What I can tell you is they've changed the requirements, and it is now much easier to get leniency. At the end of the Obama administration, they were somewhat embarrassed by the fact that no one at a senior level at a Wall Street firm was prosecuted during the 2008 or because of the 2008 crisis. What I can tell you is they've changed the requirements, and it is now much easier to get leniency. At the end of the Obama administration, they were somewhat embarrassed by the fact that no one at a senior level at a Wall Street firm was prosecuted during the 2008 or because of the 2008 crisis. So they adopted something called the Yates Memorandum, named after Sally Yates, who was the deputy attorney general. And it said, we're no longer going to give you a deferred prosecution agreement, which is a probation-like discharge, unless you do a complete study and identify absolutely everyone who was involved so we'll know who the officers are that we can prosecute. And this was an all-or-nothing policy, identify everyone. Well, the Trump administration comes in and they change it, and they say you only have to identify people who are substantially involved in the crime. What does that mean? It means if there's an investigation by a private law firm hired by the company to see what happened and make a report to the government, they can say, well, the only people who paid the bribes were these assistant vice presidents overseas, and while maybe the CEO and maybe the chief financial officer knew something about this, they weren't substantially involved. And that's a very easy rationalization by which you can exclude the most senior people and thereby make sure that justice will stop at a halfway point. That's a significant change that the Trump administration put in to effectively unwind the 8th memorandum. They've done this in other areas, too. For the last 70 years, the U.S. government has had a special policy towards antitrust price-fixing. Antitrust price-fixing is very hard to detect, but it always involves a conspiracy. One firm can't do it alone. And so the policy for 70 years is we will give you leniency, but only if you make a complete confession and you are the first to confess. The business community always disliked that, but companies did make those complete confessions and got immunity for themselves and their officers. Well, the Trump administration has abolished that. They'll now say that while you can still get complete credit, we'll give you substantial sentencing leniency, great credit, if you just adopt a credible compliance plan. That's a substantial watering down. It means that price-fixing cases are less likely to begin with corporate confessions. We can go through half a dozen of these things, (laughs) just to give you one more. It used to be that there were deferred prosecution agreements, and the defense bar wanted more, so they pushed for something called non-prosecution agreements, under which no court is involved. You just agree with the prosecution that they won't prosecute you. And now they've gone one step further. There's something called declinations with disgorgement. And here the government sort of salutes you. They say, we think your cooperation was so terrific, so wonderful, that we're going to decline to prosecute you. We will require you to pay back the ill-gotten gains, to disgorge them. But that's sort of a lesser disposition which the government salutes you for your cooperation. And that's new with Trump. I can give you two or three more, but you're getting the picture.
2: Yes, absolutely. Cracking down on financial fraud led to reforms and increased corporate compliance. What is this uh, non-prosecution leading to?
1: Well, again, there were two steps, deferred prosecution, non-prosecution, which has been around for six or seven years, not, not unique to Trump, but Trump is using it much more. It's a lesser disposition under which you don't have to admit guilt. You don't have any public document. You have no court or judge involved. And both of those things mean a little bit more accountability. Uh, It used to be under deferred prosecution agreements, it was normal that the government would require you to to appoint a monitor, some outside expert, who would review the area of misbehavior and constantly uh, surveil and tell the government if it found that there was any sign of continuing activity, continuing illegal conduct or suspicious conduct. The Trump administration has said monitors are no longer required, and they are disappearing. I don't think there ever were a perfect solution, but there were one more little step that's gone.
2: I'm wondering, is there any effect to be seen yet? Are corporations engaging in more criminal behavior because there's no
1: enforcement? Well, of course, no one's going to confess to that. No one's going to say, of course, we're engaging in more criminal behavior. But they think the government's behaving much more reasonably. And when defendants think the prosecutor is being reasonable, I think it means it's a very light touch and we're not getting the harder attitude that we saw at various points uh, back under the Obama administration.
2: Now, how much is dependent on who the US attorney is in the Southern District particularly where there's a lot of white collar prosecutions because of course you remember Preet Bharara, the sheriff, so-called sheriff of Wall Street, who cracked down on insider trading.
1: Yes, he did. We
2: don't see anything like that anymore.
1: He deserves great credit, but actually there's been a long tradition in the Southern District. In fact, other um, U.S. attorneys call them the sovereign district in New York because they always resisted main justice and followed their own very aggressive policies. But note that the last two duly appointed U.S. attorneys, uh, both Perihara and his Republican successor, have been fired by President Trump. That's a pretty strong signal that you can't remain independent and you can't go your own way. No, I don't know any place else where the government has fired two successive U.S. attorneys.
2: One of the former prosecutors in the antitrust and fraud division said that a lot of this non-enforcement is because veterans, veteran attorneys, have left that division and then there are younger lawyers there who really don't know yet how to put a case together. Do you think that's a, a valid explanation?
1: I can't reject it. I don't know that we have inept people in the Justice Department or the U.S. Attorney's Office. They usually get the very best people, Supreme Court clerks and the others, but it takes a while to learn your job. You can't do it fully on day one. But notice, if they are leaving, why are they leaving? It might be they have been demoralized by the new policies, the new restraints, and the lack of commitment to strong enforcement. I would think I wouldn't Personally, as a young, aggressive U.S. attorney or assistant U.S. attorney, I don't think I'd be happy working under the Trump leadership, and I might find other employment. What is the message of your book? Well, we need to be more aggressive in different ways. The number one problem is we don't have the resources to adequately investigate all these cases. That's the principal reason why people at Lehman and other firms were not investigated. They weren't just not prosecuted. They weren't investigated. And I think we've got to both get more resources and find ways to make the corporation much more eager to settle. Today, we have a system under which we sort of trade up. We start at the lowest level and find the lowest person and hope you'll implicate the next person. And we climb the ladder with everybody turning on the person above them. That works to a degree, but it never gets you to the very top. I think one of the things we have to do is to start at the top and tell the board of directors or its audit committee that they have to take control of this investigation and its decisions, and we will threaten you with the equivalent of a bankrupting penalty unless you identify for us who were the responsible officers, going back to identify everyone. So I think you have to negotiate from both levels, from the top down and the bottom up, trying to get the entity to identify the responsible officers. I'm a believer that we really have to get individuals held responsible and prosecuting the corporation is a very second best substitute.
2: And you mentioned before the financial crisis where, you know, people kept saying, when are we going to see people in handcuffs who are really responsible? And we never did. Has there been a time in our we never history? Did. When's the last time prosecutors have gotten to the top?
1: Go back and think of Enron and WorldCom, 2001 through 2003. The CEOs of both of those firms went to prison, and the CEO of WorldCom was only released after 25 years when he was terminally ill about a couple of months ago. So we have often prosecuted senior executives. Enron, WorldCom, and a dozen other companies had their CEOs criminally prosecuted and jailed. And we had the same thing during the savings bank crisis back in the 1980s. Something like 500 senior bank officers went to prison for failures of small savings banks that took ridiculous risks and hid the details. The problem is the very large corporation, it's going to be a massive inquiry before you can get all the data. Sometimes thousands of people are involved in a broad policy, and that is forbidding to the government. They don't have the resources, and we've got to find ways to give them resources. One of the things I propose, which the SEC won't like at all, is the SEC is also resource-constrained, and sometimes they should hire private law firms, very good private law firms, on a contingency fee basis to sue the defendants, because the SEC doesn't have enough manpower. But if you told a plaintiff's law firm that they could handle this case under the direction of the SEC, under the total control of the SEC— and they would get 25% of the recovery as their contingent fee, I think that would solve some of the resource constraints that we are now facing. That's just one of the examples. There are others.
2: Thanks, Jack. That's Professor John Coffey of Columbia Law School. His new book is entitled Corporate Crime and Punishment, The Crisis of under
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. President
2: Trump is facing a battle over a set of executive actions he issued on Saturday, providing economic relief measures during the pandemic, including weekly federal unemployment payments, student loan relief and efforts to protect tenants from eviction. With those actions, is Trump trying to wrest core powers away from Congress after weeks of discussions over a second pandemic rescue package stalled? Joining me is Matt Dalek, a professor at Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. Are President Trump's orders unprecedented in our
3: history? Well, they're highly unusual. I, I, I wouldn't say that they're totally unprecedented in that you know, Trump himself has created a kind of precedent uh, for them. So, for example, when he issued one of his first executive orders out of the blue with the travel ban early on and the so-called Muslim ban, that was a, an executive order that actually he had to revise multiple times. And that sowed chaos at airports uh, across the country. I think that there are also, uh, he's also set a precedent when his failure to reach an accommodation with Congress. On his wall. (laughs) After weeks of of trying to negotiate and then failing uh, to reach an agreement, he issued an emergency declaration and tried to repurpose the money from the Defense Department and other places to build the wall. So, you know, even though the circumstances are a bit different, I think that what he has done with these four memos and executive orders are of a piece of how he has issued orders during his administration. But but yes, before Trump, I think that, you know, as controversial as the executive orders have been, you know, Trump has, has really pushed uh, the boundaries of them in ways that are highly uh, circumspect and unusual.
2: And the courts haven't stopped him. The Supreme Court ended up approving the final Muslim ban, and, and the Supreme Court has let Trump continue to use military funds to build the wall until that lawsuit reaches them, and we don't know what they'll do with that suit.
3: Yeah, so we don't, we don't know what they're going to uh, do with the over the wall. And it's true, the Supreme Court did a poll, but it was a much revised ban, and it took quite a long time it to work its way to the courts, and I think the Muslim ban had to be revised at least a couple of times, and remember it also evoked this withering dissent from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who I believe likened it to the treatment of Japanese Americans during World War II, sort of a a religious uh, discrimination, letting that stand. So, you know, these are highly uh, controversial, and look, executive orders have been controversial in the past. I do think what Uh, Trump has done in particular with the executive order about building the wall and the national emergency and also with these recent orders and memos is to start to infringe on the congressional power of the purse. And and Congress has the constitutional authority to appropriate money. And Trump has begun to, I think, infringe on that when he's been unable to reach these deals.
2: Has Congress... Over the decades, not just during Trump, has Congress been giving more and more authority to the executive by ceding more of its authority?
3: Is that how we got to this point? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a big and, and complicated uh, question. But in an era of nuclear weaponry, and after two world wars, and, and during the Cold War, and then after 9-11. Certainly on matters of national security and foreign policy, the trend for many decades has been to cede to the president a much, much greater authority. And, and even to the extent where Congress has voted on whether or not to authorize a war, this has not been a formal declaration of war as the Constitution demands. It's been a resolution, you know, a, a resolution, for example, to authorize the use of force in Iraq. In 2002. Or after 9 11, the resolution to authorize the use of force against terrorism, which I believe is still in force and has been used to justify all sorts of military activities overseas. The other point I would make is that in an era of partisan polarization, when Congress has been unable to reach deals and when uh, Congress's approval ratings are maybe at 15% or sometimes even in the single digits, presidents have, you know as barack obama said uh after being frustrated repeatedly by republicans in congress he's got a phone and a pen and the pen of course refers to using executive orders and other executive action so congress by default in a way by being unable to enact or pass major legislation has ceded i think uh much of its unwittingly ceded much of its authority to uh to presidents and has opened the door for the kind of mischief, I think, that uh, and, and what I think many argue are unconstitutional actions by President Trump.
2: Republican Senator Ben Sass said the pen and phone theory of executive lawmaking is unconstitutional slop but he was one of very few Republicans to criticize this move. And so what are the Republicans saying by letting the president go ahead with moving military funds to a border wall and here redirecting funds from FEMA?
3: The first thing is that it's a height of hypocrisy, right, that the you know, Republicans spent many years railing against President Obama for acting like a king and issuing these sorts of unconstitutional orders that were supposedly destroying freedom and individual liberty i think what we're seeing though now of course is the shoes on the other foot (laughs) and and in particular you know republicans are headed into a very tough election year uh the president is on the ballot and i think most republicans at the federal level feel like politically they have no choice right that that their fate and really the power that they have in washington and in the country, uh, and to appoint Supreme Court justices, for example, that all that is riding on this election. And, you know, if they come out, like Ben Fass did, and start criticizing Trump, uh, I think that they worry that their party's going to be even further divided, and it will depress uh, their vote. Ben Fass, interestingly, who's up for re-election, I believe, in November, he's already won his primary. And you know, he doesn't have a even close to competitive race, So, you know, he's a little bit more politically free to issue uh, a criticism. But yeah, I mean, Republicans have really, and you can say that about, you know, 101 different issues over the past four years where Republicans have just kind of washed their hands of what they have said is their, are their principles and ceded and the stage and the policies and programs that Trump, even if it violates their own beliefs.
2: where President Obama's executive orders substantially similar to President Trump's? In other words, did he ever divert money in executive orders from one project to another?
3: Not that I'm aware of, not in the way that Trump is using uh, uh, these orders. Now, you know, almost all executive orders require, almost by definition, the use of some funds because, of course, you're telling a federal agency to prioritize one issue over another. So, for example, when President Obama, I think his first executive order, or one of his first, was to uh, authorize the closure of Guantanamo Bay. Now, that never happened, but certainly there was was some funding involved, right, in getting the federal government to focus on that project. Same thing uh, when President Obama issued the DACA order. You're telling the immigration services, in uh, the federal government to focus on particular priorities and funding flows as a result of that. What I think makes Trump's orders different is that, uh, and again, with both the border wall and these latest executive orders is that after weeks of negotiations with Congress, then failed over the power of the purse, which is constitutional uh, power that, that Congress has. Trump has issued an order to circumvent that and to change spending policy and to appropriate, essentially, new funds for purposes not authorized by Congress, and also, in this case, to change tax law unilaterally, and in a way not authorized by Congress. So, you know, these are, uh, I think there's a reason why so many constitutional scholars are looking at this and saying that this is dubious. Uh, Trump's actions are dubious at best. And, you know, President Obama is, I would say, most aggressive executive orders had to do with immigration. One of them, DACA, for the children uh, who came to the country as undocumented immigrants. And then the other was a more sweeping executive order. One of those withstood scrutiny in the courts. The other did not. But I don't think President Obama or other presidents have explicitly, with their orders, tried to circumvent Uh, the power of the purse that Congress enjoys.
2: Well, when he was announcing these orders, President Trump said, basically, well, we're going to be sued on this. I think the question is, who would sue to stop these?
3: Well, yeah, that's that's always the question in these things, right? Who's going to do the stopping? And also, how long will the stopping take? Even if Democrats in Congress don't uh, sue, it's conceivable that some states and state attorneys general will sue because... In this unemployment order or memo that Trump has issued, he is requiring the states, I think, to chip in $100 to make it to $400 a week for people who are on unemployment. And the states are saying, look, you know, we're essentially bankrupt. We can't take on this added expenditure at a time when we're going to have to make these major cuts. So you could see the states doing, you could see nonprofit organizations that um, in part defend uh, Congress or, or see their job as sort of promoting... A separation of powers uh, trying to sue. And the courts will, of course, have to decide who has standing, just as the courts had to decide this question in the emoluments uh, cases where President Trump was being sued about his uh, property and whether his government was unconstitutionally, essentially, accepting payment from foreign uh, entities. The problem that, that I think the Democrats have, of course, and that's been true with any number of cases with Trump is that, you know, the courts as we've seen are slow and they're often divided. And even in the case of Trump's taxes, which have still never been revealed. So, you know, we see the the limits of the checks from both Congress and the courts I think in uh, in this instance as well.
2: At a press conference yesterday, Trump said that he was going to issue an executive order to ensure that insurance covers pre-existing conditions, even though it was pointed out that that is already part of the law known as Obamacare that his administration is fighting. So I'm wondering if all these things are
3: just for show,
2: and he doesn't really care if it goes through or not.
3: Yeah, well, let's, yeah, I mean, let's just kind of cut to the chase, right, Um, both that order, right, that he says he's going to use to protect pre-existing conditions, and the other orders and memos about payroll taxes and unemployment insurance, I mean, these are essentially efforts to con people into think that he's actually doing something, um, and to create the, the illusion that he is taking action. Now, in the case of pre-existing orders, uh, pre-existing conditions, um, I mean, it's absurd on his face because he has spent his entire presidency basically trying to uh, abolish Obamacare and abolish that provision, which is at the heart of Obamacare. And, you know, remember he tried a couple of times through Congress to, um, to enact a law or, well, basically to defund and abolish, uh, Obamacare and to abolish the pre-existing conditions. And his administration is still supporting a lawsuit. Uh, that would uh, do exactly that. And so that executive order is really, I think, um, you know, it's gonna affront to reality. Uh, and then on these other orders, yeah, I mean, this unemployment bump that he says that he's going to give, um, the states are already saying it's unworkable. And apparently what he's done is he's trying to create a new kind of program. The funds apparently would only last for five weeks for people. Um, but it may take weeks or months to kind of stand up the program, and uh, and states think that it's just, or a lot of states at least think that it's just unworkable, right? That it's not it's not feasible, uh, uh, and and so it is unclear whether any money that he says he's going to give to people is ever going to reach uh, their hands. But it is a way of trying to cover up the the reality. That, you know Democrats passed this bill in the house to continue the $600 a week supplemental unemployment insurance for, for people across the country hit by the pandemic. Um, the Republicans and Democrats failed to reach an agreement. The Senate Republicans couldn't pass their own bill. And so Trump I think is trying to kind of cover up for uh, that and cover up for this you know real political weakness that he has heading into the fall election.
2: Okay, cool. Well, before I let you go, what are executive orders supposed to be used for? We've seen a lot of misuse over the years. What are they supposed
3: to be used for? Well, look, there's no one definition. Um, Historically, they have been used for uh, issues uh, such as promoting um, uh, uh, anti-discrimination putting in anti-discrimination uh, clauses, fighting racial discrimination in federal contracting, um, setting up, uh, for example, the Fair Employment Practices uh, Commission during uh, World War uh, II, or uh, promoting affirmative action uh, and in, in the 1960s, in particular uh, with respect to federal contracting and federal hiring. There have been also executive orders uh, abridging civil liberties, sort of directing, uh, creating security measures in the Department of State and the national security apparatus. Uh, we have seen uh, executive orders around public health, so stem cell research, which was a, a controversial uh, issue. And remember, President George W. Bush, I think it was the first order he signed, or one of them, executive order, limiting stem cell uh, research. And Barack Obama lifted those restrictions as soon as he got into office. They are also generally a way for the, I mean more broadly there's a way that the president can use these orders to attempt to tell the federal agencies and federal bureaucracies that the president uh, runs uh, how to prioritize the work that they do and also how to interpret the law that Congress has passed. So uh, they are but there are also significant limits on them. And what we have seen uh, is that executive orders are also pretty easy, once the other party gets into power, to overturn, unless they're very uh, popular. So uh, President Obama uh, used an executive order to create the uh, deferred uh, action program for dreamers, and uh, President Trump rescinded that. So, um, you know, they tend to lead to a far more chaotic, approach to governing, and they tend uh, to, uh, and and they're also vulnerable to being uh, overturned by opponents once they get into office.
2: That's Matt Dalek of Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Catch us every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th.